It's Thursday, May 24th, and this is The Daily Dive. Big-time rule changes have come to the NFL regarding their policy on the national anthem. In an effort to combat negative publicity over players choosing to kneel during the national anthem to raise awareness of racial inequality and social justice issues, players will now be required to stand when out on the field. We will speak to Andrew Beaton, sports writer for the Wall Street Journal, to see how this will all play out. We'll also speak to Lydia Wheeler, legal affairs reporter for The Hill, about an interesting ruling concerning the president and his favorite method of communication. A judge has ruled that the president cannot block people on Twitter. We will hear what's in the ruling and whether the president has to unblock some followers. Finally, we will hear the second part of our interview with Rich Shapiro about the incredible true story of the collar bomb heist. We were just about to hear an interesting twist in the story. Brian Wells, the man who robbed the bank and was blown up by a bomb he had collared to his neck, might have been involved in the planning of the heist. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We want people uh, to be respectful to national anthem. We want people to stand. That's all personnel and make sure that they treat this uh, moment in a respectful fashion. That's something that we think we owe. We have uh, been very sensitive in making sure that we uh, give players choices, but we do believe uh, that that moment is an important moment. Joining us now is Andrew Beaton. He's a sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal. The NFL made some sweeping changes to its national anthem policy. Obviously, they've been getting a lot of negative press for the past couple of years over a lot of players kneeling. They're trying to draw attention to social justice issues, racial inequality. They came up with this new thing that says they need to, if they're going to be on the field, they need to stand and show some respect. What else did they say in these new changes? Well, that's the, the real gist of it. And it's a really big deal when you compare it to how they had handled the issue in over the past couple of seasons since this started in 2016. This was a big deal when it started, then it faded a bit into the background. And I think the league really hoped that over time that they could work with the players and that these protests would peter out. But instead, it only became more of an issue and more of a sideshow for the NFL in this past season when President Donald Trump weighed in and it really became an even more politically charged topic. And so while they had these rules on the books that for a long time said the players should stand, and they really tore that up and changed it on Wednesday to say that the players no longer are forced to be on the field during the national anthem, which was the case in the past that they the players were required to be on the field. But if you are on the field, you must stand or the teams are subject to fines and penalties. It seems like they only have a few options, right? They can be on the field, they have to stand and show respect, or they can either be in the locker room or in the tunnel. Those are the kind of the only options they really get. Yeah, and though what's clear, though, is that the players were, are not happy about this. We've seen some players on social media express discontent. We've seen the NFL Players Association, which theoretically represents the players as a whole, all express their concerns because this was not done, they said, in con- consultation with the players. And this is a league where they have a collective bargaining agreement, but this was part of the game day operations manual. So it's not something that they had to get an agreement with on the players for. It's something that the owners and the league leadership could change unilaterally. And when the players felt that this was an effective medium for them to express their messages about the issues you talked about, about racial inequality and social justice, then in some sense, they feel that is being stripped from them. And while it's nice for them, I'm sure that they're now being given the option to stay in the tunnel instead of being out there. I think kind of the point to the players was that they wanted to be out there sending a message about the issues they care about. 
right? It's raised a lot of questions. Some people have said, well, what's it going to look like when half a team, a third of a team is standing outside and everybody else is inside? A big question I see is the issue of showing respect outside. So what does that mean? Obviously, this is all about kneeling, but a lot of players were holding their fists up in the air, standing for the national anthem, but holding their fists up. So is that going to be a sign of disrespect? How, who's going to be deciding all that? And I think that's a great question because, and I think the point of, is that we don't know an exact answer right now because we're entering uncharted territory for the NFL. Before, there was a protocol that the players could not be punished for this, the teams could not be punished for it because it was not explicitly against the rules. So now we're facing this new reality where what does it mean to show respect other than obviously the league needs these players out there standing. That's one of the things they mandated. But to show respect, if you're linking arms and talking about a message, is that respect? If you're raising a fist but still standing, is that respect? I think there's a lot of questions that are unanswered, and we still don't even know if players will to what extent they will fight against this. Will they kneel and risk punishment from their teams or for their teams? There's a lot that we will see, and we'll probably get a better indication when preseason games start, but I think that there's going to be a lot of time for them, for players to hatch out their plans and what they think is the best way to convey their messages. Because at the end of the day, this all began with different players wanting to draw attention to causes. This To the players, this wasn't a show of wanting to be unpatriotic. It was a show of wanting to call attention to issues such as police brutality that they really care about. And the way the rules are set up, the team would be fined first, and then it's up to the team to decide if they want to punish the players further. Exactly. Because it's one of those league rules, the league was in a position where it couldn't necessarily say, okay, we're going to find the players who kneel, but they can impose discipline on the teams with the players. And so what they, the change they made is so they can discipline the teams and they leave the decision up to the teams themselves, whether they're going to discipline a given player. We probably have a good indication of some owners who really care about this one way or the other. We saw last season, Jerry Jones, the Dallas Cowboys say that he didn't want his players kneeling and that if they knelt, they wouldn't play. But you also saw the CEO of the New York Jets today, Christopher Johnson, say he stands with the players and that he doesn't want to be finding them. So I think we're going to really see some differences team by team, and you can probably see the personality of the owners come through in that. One of the interesting things in the rollout of this was they said the new proposal passed unanimously with all the owners. That's not actually true. One of the owners abstained from voting. It was San Francisco 49ers owner Jed York. He said he wanted to see what the players had to say before he could make a determination on this. That's another great example of we're seeing that while we know a lot of the owners were concerned about this and they talked about it all years, not all the owners have the same view on this. There's different ends of the spectrum. You have owners like Jeffrey Lurie in Philadelphia to Jerry Jones in Dallas who have very different personalities. Jed York is another executive with a different outlook. I mean, he, his team is in a different type of market in the San Francisco area, but he also is someone who understands the nuances of this issue with the players. This all really began in San Francisco with Colin Kaepernick, with Eric Reed, And so if you want to talk about an executive who has felt the impact of this national conversation, he's someone who really has. And the last thing on him, too, he he even said in a couple of statements that he would consider halting sales of concessions during the national anthem. Players are going to be forced to stand and respect the anthem and the flag. Well, he's going to make everybody do it. It's a fascinating window into the way that some of these executives think, and that it's a fair point that if you are asking the players to do this, should the should an owner also be raking in dollars when 
players can't get their message out during this period of time. There's a lot of little decisions, a lot of nuance to this conversation that we're going to see play out in the next weeks, months, and year. I know this is a huge PR fix for them, but do they think this is going to help with ratings? You've definitely seen some people say that this is a factor in ratings. And as someone who has written a lot on this subject, I've definitely gotten reader emails that say, hey, I'm never watching the NFL again because the players are not respecting the flag. On the other hand, if you listen to people from the league, if you listen to media executives from the people who are paying for the media rights, they think that this is, if anything, a minor, minor, minor piece of the conversation. The reality on the television ratings more has to do with the fact that television ratings in primetime have been going down steadily for years. This isn't a problem unique to the NFL. In fact, the NFL outlived the primetime ratings decline for years, and it's just sort of now they're part of the general wave. So I think if anything, all these factors with the anthem are a tiny, tiny piece of the puzzle. Andrew Beaton, sports reporter for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Are President Trump's tweets considered official White House statements? Well, the president is the president of the United States, so they're considered official statements by the president of the United States. Sit back, relax, and enjoy my tweets. Joining us now is Lydia Wheeler. She's a legal and regulatory affairs reporter for The Hill. We're in a strange uh, moment in politics. This is, I guess you could say, our first Twitter president. He takes to Twitter to express his thoughts, to uh, attack people, to you know, give shout-outs to people, retweets. But there was an interesting thing that was happening. He was blocking certain people from his account, his official at real Donald Trump account. And a federal judge just ruled that he can't do that. What was in the ruling? A federal district court judge in New York said that the president can't block people on Twitter who disagree with him politically. And these were people who were replying to his tweets with uh, kind of retorts to things against him. One person, after the president tweeted, congratulations, you know, the first new coal mine of the Trump era has opened in Pennsylvania. Uh, One of the users that was blocked said, congrats, and now black lung won't be covered under Trump care. Yeah, just some Um, snarky stuff, trolley type uh, stuff, but nothing major, nothing, no personal attacks or anything like that. No, none of it really seems to be that personal. Um, They're using some of his own words against him um, and, you know, kind of trolling him a little bit. One user said, kind of replying to him, said, this is how the whole world sees you and included a meme of his interaction with the Pope um, when the Pope kind of gave him an odd look, um, you know, and kind of turned uh, turned his back to him. So it's kind of those things. It's definitely people that are trolling him. But but it goes to show that this president doesn't has a little bit of a thin skin here and and doesn't want to doesn't want to deal with these these people. So his initial reaction is to just block them. But the judge said that you can't do that, that that violates their First Amendment right to free speech because Twitter is a public forum. One of the big distinctions was you could probably mute them. It still gives them the ability to tweet at you or see your tweets, but blocking them takes them out of the equation completely. And that's the main distinction where they said he can't do that. 
That's right. She said when you mute someone, they can actually still reply to your tweets and they can still see what you're tweeting. But when you block them, that that blocks them from being able to see your tweets and also reply to them. And and you just can't do that. Um, She said that that goes too far. Who brought forth this lawsuit? This lawsuit was actually brought by the First Amendment institution, and they brought it on behalf of uh, seven users on Twitter who were specifically blocked. But there have been reports that the number of people who have been blocked by Donald Trump actually are in the hundreds. Does he have to go back and unblock those people? So that's what's interesting here is that the judge did not actually order the president or his social media director to go back and unblock these users as those plaintiffs had requested. She said that her rule that it's unconstitutional for the uh, for President Trump to be blocking them uh, should be enough and that she didn't need to go far and get into what the relief should be. So that part was kind of interesting that, you know, she didn't actually give them the relief that, that they requested, but she said that you should do the right thing here. And, and you know, no, she said, you know, no government office is, uh, official is above the law and that all government officials are, are presumed to follow the law once the judiciary has said what the law is. And so she said basically, we assume that you will remedy this on your own. And then just to clarify, um, you know, in addition to being a public forum, the president's Twitter, they did decide that the tweets are actual White House, uh, official White House statements. Right. And I think what's interesting is that we're in such an unprecedented time here. Um, We've never before had, you know, a president use social media like this. This is a direct line between the president and the public. And so, therefore, it makes them official statements uh, of the president. People who court watchers and legal experts are hailing this ruling as a critical victory in preserving free speech rights in the digital age. Has uh, the White House or the Department of Justice spoken out about this yet? So I contacted uh, the White House and uh, they did not respond to my request, but the Department of Justice did get back to me and they said that the agency respectfully uh, disagrees with the court's decision and right now is considering its next steps. So whether or not they will appeal this ruling or just let it lie, uh, we're not sure what they will decide to do, but that's likely coming in in the coming days, if not weeks. I just wonder if this ruling is going to embolden a lot of other people to increase the troll activity on the president's Twitter I know he sometimes invites it, but now that they know they can't be blocked, I wonder if uh, it might increase some of that uh, activity. You know, I can almost imagine it would. Uh, The director of the First uh, Amendment Institution tweeted out right after this ruling. He quoted that specific line in the judge's ruling in which she said, you know, no government official is above the law. Then they are expected to follow the law once the judiciary says what the law is. So that line was uh, he took a screen grab of that line, tweeted it and said to the president and also to his media director in a tweet, the clock's ticking. (laughs) Oh, man. It's so interesting, all of the, the way everything changes, like you said, in the digital age now. New rulings, new laws, everything changes constantly and, and very quickly, too. Absolutely. We are entering a whole new phase with more social media and the prevalence of, of Twitter and Facebook. You're seeing these digital privacy issues crop up more and more. Lydia Wheeler, legal and regulatory affairs reporter for The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. In other words, that he was involved in the planning of it, but investigators believe that he was double-crossed and ultimately was put in this situation where he was killed. Where we last left off, we learned more about some of the major players in the collar bomb heist. Mastermind Marjorie Deal Armstrong and bomb maker Bill Rothstein. We'll pick it up there and find out if bomb victim Brian Wells was also in on the plot. 
One of the interesting things that surfaced is that everybody was kind of in on this together. They even say that Brian Wells himself, the victim in this case of that bomb, uh, was also in on this plot. They were all going to try to hit a payday from stealing money from this bank. That's right. When the authorities brought charges uh, in 2007, they announced what was at the time a, a real kind of bombshell, and that was that Brian Wells, the police, the, the kind of mild-mannered, middle-aged pizza delivery man who was killed uh, in the course of this crime, was in fact not a full-fledged victim, but was a member of the conspiracy, at least initially. In other words, that he was involved in the planning of it, um, but investigators believe that he was double-crossed, and ultimately was put in this situation where he was killed. Um, and according to the investigators, Brian Wells had been a willing participant in the, in the early stages of it, thinking, uh, of course, that he wasn't going to become a victim. So that's kind of the story on the surface. Uh, Brian Wells robs the bank, he uh, gets blown up by the device that they were trying to, that they were using. Like you said, he was an unwilling participant at the end. He didn't really know he was going to be the victim. But let's reach a little deeper. Uh, you know, they say that Marjorie Deal Armstrong kind of orchestrated this whole thing. She wanted to kill her father. He was spending a lot of her inheritance money she saw. Um, but can we describe who she is and how, you know, some of her mannerisms a little? In this Netflix show, you get to see a lot of uh, video and things. And she seems very eccentric. She's a uh, just a fascinating kind of figure. Marjorie Jill Armstrong was a brilliant student growing up. She was a, a musical prodigy. She was attractive. She seemed to have everything going for her. And, and then as she got older, she started exhibiting signs of, of mental illness. Uh, she's been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and, and some other personalities, some personality disorders, um, and someone whose who's, who's mind uh, essentially unraveled. Um, she's also someone who has uh, someone whose um, romantic partners have died at a kind of startling rate. Um, I, I, right. she had I like three least, former lovers that were killed or something, uh, correct. all or, under or died sus suspicious under circumstances. Mysterious circumstances. So that's kind of, uh, among the, the defining features of, of her life. And, and, and it's also the case that this whole plot unraveled because she killed her boyfriend at the time. Right. Uh, one more time she killed a lover and, uh, that's how, Bill Rothstein got involved. She called him and said, I need help hiding a body. And Bill Rothstein, a former lover of hers as well, uh, for some unknown reason, agreed to it. And that's where the 911 call that kind of started the rest of this side of the story. Bill Rothstein called police and said, there's a frozen body in a freezer and it's in my house. So describe to us that a little bit. Uh, he helped her get this body put in the freezer and then they were going to try to dispose of it somehow. Less than a month after Wells was killed, Rothstein calls 911 and essentially tells police that there's a body in his freezer um, 
and that he 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 later tells the police that he he ended up making the phone call because he didn't want to go through with Marjorie Steele Armstrong's plan of of actually cutting up the body in an ice chipper, and he was afraid of what she might do if he refused to to carry out that task. That phone call led to Marjorie Dale Armstrong getting arrested and charged with the killing of her then boyfriend, whose name was Jim Roden. And Bill Rothstein insisted that it was completely separate from the Brian Wells case. It had nothing to do with it. Um, But Marjorie um, ended up getting sent to prison. And it was while she was in prison that she, she actually reached out to authorities and said she has information uh, about the Brian Wells case. That's it for today. Tomorrow we will wrap up the story, find out what some other motivations they might have had, and learn the fate of all the players. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us comments and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.